Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Happy Wednesday, everybody. This week, it feels like a lot of things were were happening this week, and this episode, it's not going to be sad. I'm, I'm not going to like be emotional, but it is a little bit, a little bit more, more somber, I guess, kind of, in a very like not that big a deal type of way but before we get into that of course we have to begin this episode with our opening minutes and we got a couple of things on the pipeline for for today's episode so let's just jump into it the number one thing being nope the premiere for nope was this week i think it was on monday and uh, the re- the reviews are glowing <laughs> The reviews are glowing. They're, they're, they're sounding wonderful, especially from my sister. She's not really my sister, but I'm, you know, if I just say it enough, maybe we will become sisters. Kiki Palmer. Kiki Palmer is getting just glowing reviews for her performance in Nope. So I am, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that I will be able to see it soon because I am, ugh, I've, it's, it's been one of my most anticipated films for this year and you guys know I've said it multiple times I don't really do like horror but I love Jordan Peele it's a weird back and forth I love I love Jordan Peele don't necessarily love horror but you know what that's the duality of me you know what I mean so I'm I'm really excited for Nope I I from what I've heard I saw a couple of, of accounts saying that it's very Spielbergian sci-fi and y'all know E.T. is one of is probably is one of if not my favorite movie of all time so if it's kind of up that alley I'm very excited I don't think it will be as like heartwarming as E.T. I've heard it's a little bit closer to Close Encounters of the Third Kind and like Jaws but it's still Spielberg and I still love it so (laughs) I win so yeah very excited for that congratulations to everyone on Nope congratulations to Jordan Peele always does phenomenal work just such a phenomenal director and an actor and everything he's just the best moving on to a there was another film that had a premiere pretty recently it was for the gray man directed by the russo brothers and the russos did an interview with i think the hollywood reporter and there was one particular quote that was that stood out to me because it was such a interesting 
juxtaposition. So essentially, I'm paraphrasing here. You can find the full quote, but I'm paraphrasing. The The quote was kind of, I think it might have been from Joe Russo, and he was explaining kind of the 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 act of going to the movie theater is very, you know, elitist. And, and kind of, it was almost like a, um, he was saying that like the whole idea of holding up the movie theater as this sacred place is like bullshit and everything like that. And so I th- what was interesting about it to me was that we could have been going down the road of talking about movie theaters being becoming experiences that are priced but from the masses like the the masses are being priced out of being able to go to a theater and see a movie and we really could have had a good discussion and a good dialogue talking about the growing expense of these kind of common pastimes and like inflation and we could talk about how like the movie industry and like who is exploiting that system to where the common person is not able to go to a movie theater for a reasonable price anymore we could have had that discussion but to go to take a little bit of a fork in the road and go down the route of like we should not hold up movie theaters as a sacred place and you know like you're able to get i think he said something to the effect of like you're able to get 40 stories for the price of one with streaming it was just a weird pivot because for a multitude of reasons and I will we will get into why but the biggest one being that the Russos the majority of their success is attributed to blockbuster films and blockbuster films simply cannot survive without movie theaters It is almost as if you are a baseball player saying that you don't need a stadium to play baseball. And you don't, technically. But more often than not, you need the general format of like the bases and home plate and all that stuff. It's necessary for the practice. It's just, it was so weird to me. (laughs) The statement was just so odd because it's like, are you are you as a director waging war on the movie theater or what what are we doing like what what's what's the end goal here what's the the end all be all what what's the end game of what we're trying to say because what we the conversation that we could have had about the the price of exhibiting movies in a theater which is you know as is is synonymous with you know like like it's it's a very like it's a thing that you just do you know like going to the movie theater something that we've done for you know over a hundred years now it's a common like pastime to do and it's a global pastime too it's not just like confined to just an american experience even though it is a very like big piece of pop americana to go to a movie theater but like we could have had that discussion but you go and you pivot to what what you pivot to what is essentially a kind of a rallying cry behind streaming. And I am not against streaming in any type of way. But if that is the end game here, no pun intended, it's just strange. It was just a strange statement. And I think the the coincidence is not lost on me that the Russos have just put out this film 
for Netflix. There was probably a massive payday that came from that. So I understand that maybe they're, the appeal for them with streaming is, you know, you get a lot of money probably up front and then you can kind of, you can take it and run. The movie can do well or not do well, but you still got paid at the end of the day versus putting a film in theaters and the success of it is based off of, it's a, it's a group effort kind of thing. Like people have to go see the movie and then you get the box office numbers and that determines your, your, your rate, which you're paid or whatever it is. Like, you know, so I just, I thought it was fascinating that like, like a blockbuster director, you know, is saying like, oh, the, we should not see the, the whole, like going to the movie theaters is sacred and it's, it's, it's bullshit, all that stuff. I just thought it was very interesting, very interesting. And that is me being nice because I, I don't know. I just thought it, I thought that statement was a little bit odd to me. A director saying going to the movie theaters is, you know, BS, whatever. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not on a Russo brothers level. So, you know, maybe I'm, I'm talking out of turn here, but I just thought it was a little bit, a little bit interesting and very weird, (laughs) very, very weird. If I'm being honest, I think, you know, if I could be vulnerable for a little bit here, I think what really bothered me about the statement was that while I don't see it like the movie theaters, like akin to a church or anything like that, I, the movie theater means a lot to me because that is the place, like I can point to a physical location where I have had some of my first like core memories as just like a human being and also just it represents something that means a lot to me you know like it represents something that is now a very big part of my life like to go to a movie theater is to escape you know you escape into another world for an hour and a half to two hours in this day and age two and a half to three hours but you know still you're you're escaping to another another place for a little bit and then you walk out of it and you're like okay like you know I can I can I can deal with life for a little bit more but I was able to escape and it it felt nice you know like you're it's the art of going to a movie theater it's almost as good as is going to see the movie for me. Like while I, I think streaming is great in a lot of ways, I think it a lot, like it opens the door to, you know, find new things that you might not have ever found before or revisit old things that weren't, you know, as accessible to you. I think all of those things are great about streaming, but the one thing is the, the actual viewing it part. For me, sometimes watching something on a, you know, tiny 13 inch screen, you know, or on my phone or whatever it is, it just doesn't, it doesn't, for lack of a better term, it doesn't hit in the same way that a movie theater does. And it's, it's the spectacle, you know, of going to a movie theater. It's the grandeur of this like, you know, 20 by 40 foot screen or whatever it is with surround sound. And, you know, like the movie theaters have their own specific kind of like food and cuisine, you know, like eating popcorn and you're you're sitting in a room with strangers and watching this thing and you're taking it all in and you know the the best part about going to a movie theater sometimes is we especially when you're going with someone else you can 
both take in the movie and then my favorite thing to do after a movie is over is to be like oh what'd you think like and it's great when you agree and you're like oh it was amazing but then it's even better when you know whoever you're with is like eh, I really like it and you can just you know talk it over so I think the movie theater means a lot to a lot of people I would imagine that it should mean a lot to a lot of directors to the point where it maybe inspired them to want to become a director but I don't know I saw a lot of discourse yesterday on Twitter disc like talking about this trend of people going into fields not liking the field that they're going into so what I mean by that is like this growing trend of screenwriters who don't watch tv or musicians who don't listen to music or writers who don't write like you don't read you know like I am seeing that quite a bit and this is this quote feels like it falls in line with that which is just like I don't know if the thing now is like to be like as a director be like yeah I don't like movie theaters I'm like what like I don't know it's just strange and also like the last bit on this and then we'll move on it's just like the Russos are on the level of of I'm sure influence in the industry where they could do something about the growing like the mounting price of going to a movie theater I would imagine like I would imagine that they do have enough pull in the industry to where they could start to affect some change in that regard it, it feels weird because it feels like a kind of like and this is a very, you know, $5 word that I'm about to say. But it feels very, like, pseudo-anti-capitalist to be like, yeah, movie theaters are, you know, an elitist experience and everything like that. When you are a director duo that has made a m movie that has grossed over a billion dollars at the like, at the box office... It is that is a weird dichotomy to me. That's a very weird juxtaposition. I I don't love it because I'm like, but you could do something about it. It'd be different. And I was talking to a friend about this and they were saying like, it would be different if it was maybe like a more indie director who, you know, you're not able to get on this many screens. It's like franchises and everything like that. And so you kind of have taken this stance of like movie theaters or, you know, elitist experiences whatever it is that would make a little bit more sense but coming from like the directors of Avengers Endgame which again like I said made over a billion dollars at the box office incredibly strange but I don't know I've talked enough about this and I still have thoughts but for the sake of the for the sake of the episode, I will stop them here so that we can move on. Speaking of, of, of movie theaters and releases, they're planning to re-release Spider-Man No Way Home, which again made another billion dollar franchise blockbuster film that it's, I think it's like the more fun version or something like that. I don't know. Sony, I don't know if Sony has not quite learned their lesson when it comes to re-releasing films, looking at you, Morbius, that maybe that might not fare as well. I think it'll do 
Spider-Man will do better because Spider-Man is a better movie. But I, this, this whole notion of like the more fun version or whatever it is of this movie reminded me of like this, this concept of like a different cut of the movie being released is not new. But the thing is, the difference is in like back in the day, and I mean, I'm not even talking about like 20 years ago or anything like that. Like relatively recently, if there was another version of the film, they would just release it on on DVD because like at max, this new cut of the movie is maybe going to have like probably five blink and you'll miss it things added or it's just going to be the exact same movie with like a blooper reel at the end or like a like a deleted scene or something like that and so when you put it on dvd you don't like number one you're not taking up screens at the movie theater which happens like franchises as much as i love them they take up a lot of screens at movie theaters and that lessens the amount of screens for other films. And so you don't really have a good variety of, of films that are in movie theaters because franchises take up quite a bit. And especially it doesn't make sense for a franchise that has already had a very big moment at the movie theaters, then be re-released almost a year later. And it's essentially the same movie. Now, I could be wrong. It could be a completely different film, but... I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. Like, I think it's just going to be the same movie with like a few things peppered in there that that are like, oh, yeah, I guess that is different. But I don't really think I needed to like go see it in a movie theater to, to experience that. So I don't know that whole situation. I was like, they should... And I get now that like, you know, physical media is dying out, which is not a great thing. If they didn't want to release it on DVD or Blu-ray, just put it on streaming and have the deleted scenes be available there or put the deleted scenes or whatever it is on YouTube and they would do the same numbers. But I, they want to have another grab at another big box office. I get that, but it's just, ugh, I don't know. I don't know. Something about that whole situation just did not rub me the wrong way. I didn't really love it. So moving on to our last thing before we get into kind of the meat of, of this week's episode. And this, like I said, this week's episode, a little bit somber, you know, a little bit sad. If you're a fan of this thing, you're you're sad. But the last thing I wanted to talk about was the kind of horrific situation that happened at Sesame Place in Philadelphia. And Sesame Place, if you don't know, is kind of this like it's a it's a theme park basically that is um like themed to Sesame Street characters. And there was a situation to where there was like a parade and there were some like parade performers, one of them dressed up as Rosita from the show, who was like high fiving kids and then the character performer gets to these two little black girls and like gives them like a no like signal would be like no I'm not gonna like give you a high five and uh Sesame Place Philadelphia put out a statement to the effect of like you know oh well you know we take we pride ourselves on blah 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 it was a, a BS apology we all know and after that it came out like 
a lot, like a horde of clips of a lot of performers from Sesame Place specifically just ignoring black children. And Sesame Street, Sesame Workshop, then eventually made a statement. It was a little bit better, but not by much. And it, it, it was just a bad situation all around. Now, one thing I do want to clarify, and I understand the confusion, and accountability needs to be held all around. So I'm not saying this to to absolve anyone of any type of accountability. It needs to be held from the tippity top to the tippity bottom. You know what I mean? But Sesame Workshop, it's not like they, it's their own Sesame Place and Sesame Workshop are really only connected in licensing. Sesame Place is owned by the same parent company that owns SeaWorld and like Bush Gardens. So it's not like Sesame Street's own, like their like vertical integration. They own this theme park in every aspect. They've kind of just licensed out their characters and the likeness of their characters and the branding to what was kind of a faceless theme park, if that makes sense. So it's not Sesame Street directly that is responsible. It is really more the parent company of SeaWorld, Bush Gardens, and Sesame Place that are responsible for this. But because Sesame Place has the Sesame Street branding, and this is a matter that is involving kids, of course, Sesame Street and Sesame Workshop does have to take a certain level of accountability. Now, what does that accountability look like? I don't know because I'm, this is not, I'm not in the business of this, but if I had to to postulate on what maybe that accountability could look like, I think that Sesame Workshop could and probably should put a little bit of pressure onto this parent company to maybe like, I don't think that they would pull their licensing, but to basically be like, Hey, this type of situation cannot happen. And if it keeps happening or if you don't make a big enough change structurally within your company, we will pull our licensing. And I think that that is something that they, that's an option that they should explore because it's, this is a situation that like, it's bad from every angle. Like I saw the video and you just see that the the little girl, she just looks so dejected. You know, they look so, they just look really defeated and sad because it's, like you're when you're that young, the mechanics of like, oh, it's a person in a suit or whatever doesn't really, you know, doesn't really resonate. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't really like move the meter for you as far as you know, like this is just the character. And so to see the character that you watch like on TV or, you know, like you, you know, I remember like before school, I would watch Sesame Street and I'd see all the characters and, you know, I'd see Rosita like, you know, giving her like Spanish word of the day, anything And then if I were to go to this actual place and see this character that I like, you know, like just when I try to give them a high five, they're just like, no, I would be shocked. I would be really hurt. And it was just hard to see. And I I felt so bad for, for the little girls. And I hope that something is actually done. It came out that Sesame Place, like allegedly they said like, oh, they've reached out to the family and arranged a special meet and greet. And there were murmurings that that never happened and the family was never contacted and everything like that. So I don't really know what the full story is there, but I do hope that something, something is done, you know, something is done to, to rectify the situation and make sure that some like 
that these character performers are not ignoring these children going forward. It's, it's just sad. It really is just sad and, and not a good look, but you know, I just, I thought I'd mention that because I've talked about Sesame Street a couple times and a lot of people have brought up, and this is a very fair point. A lot of people have brought up, you know, it's crazy that this is happening and Sesame Street was started. The target audience for Sesame Street when it started was inner city black kids. And that is very true to help them with like, you know, like readiness for school. Like that was what, that was what Sesame Street was, was started for. And so the fact that a subsidiary of the company, whether directly or not, is doing this to black children. It is not, it doesn't bode well. So I hope that they fix that and fix it immediately. Not, you know, like when they feel like it, but you know, going forward, a new policy needs to be put in place. But I have talked your head off for 25 minutes now with opening minutes. So now we're going to move on to the meat and potatoes of this episode, which is some sad news for anyone who is a fan of the Bodega Boys, aka Jesus Nice and the Kid Marrow. They kind of they they've part ways, I guess. They have decided to um, go their separate ways creatively, and that meant that their their show on Showtime, Jesus Marrow, is now kaput it's donezo and it is is ended immediately they weren't even going to ride out the rest of the season or whatever it is they just stopped the show cold turkey um so that's that's kind of what we're talking about so as the title of the episode goes this is a eulogy for the number one show in late night so i've talked about it a couple of times before i think but i i really love late night late night tv is kind of I guess the thing that really got me like going as far as looking at TV critically and looking at the craft of it and like the writing and the history of it. So I am a major fan of late night television. Of course, my favorite, my favorites in late night, I guess I should preface are obviously Conan O'Brien. I think I've talked about him on the, on the podcast before. I think I I just love Conan for a multitude of reasons. I think it began with him being a writer on The Simpsons. And that's like one of my favorite shows of all time. And then he like went to late night and was very like, I don't know, like how to, I don't know how to describe Conan, but he was just so, so himself, you know, and sometimes that can be like a backhanded compliment. It's like, oh, you're so you, but I don't mean it in that way, but like, in the landscape of when he was beginning to break into late night, it was just a lot of people trying to replicate Johnny Carson, pretty much, um, and be like the next Johnny Carson, which it felt like Conan was just wanting to be Conan. He resonated mainly with the like college age demographic on his first show, and then when he took over David Letterman's spot, it really... his. His audience began to expand, but it still kind of had that very like, you know, like college humor, like kind of uh, feel to it, but it was still incredibly like smart. And then when he went to The Tonight Show and the whole debacle that happened there, and I, I want to talk about the, the Conan and Jay Leno Tonight Show debacle, but it is so there's so many moving pieces to it that like if I, when I eventually do talk about it, I want to make sure that I have all the details so that we know just how messed up of a situation it was. But when he went to the tonight show and kind of had it pulled out from under him, you know, 
I think a lot of people would have just, you know, taken their ball and went home, rightfully so, I think, in that regard, especially when you get kind of screwed out of being the host of The Tonight Show, which is a big deal. But leave it to Conan to, you know, come back and reinvent himself and in turn reinvent late night, like his remotes and everything and going out into the field and, um, just having the very laid back and casual format that he had on Conan on TBS, I definitely think paved the way for how late night hosts now interact with their guests and the different segments that they do. And I think definitely Conan and Team Coco as a whole was incredibly influential in bringing late night to a digital space. I think Conan has always been really good about, um, utilizing the digital space in a way that's not cringy but also it still falls in line with his his brand of comedy and I think he he's done it in a way that not many other late night hosts have been able to do authentically so I love Conan I love Jon Stewart I'm a major big Jon Stewart fan if you ask probably like if you ask my mom who I think is like a role model of mine. She would probably either say Conan or, or Jon Stewart or probably like Issa Rae or like Quinta or whatever. But of like, of like dudes, she would absolutely say Conan or, or Jon Stewart. It's like a thing. Love them both. Jon Stewart, I think, again, had the same kind of thing that Conan had going, but doing it in the like full-fledged like comedy central space and like the satirical news space. And I've talked about Jon Stewart on my TikTok before, but... The Daily Show was so interesting because it was a show, it's not a new show, but I know a lot of people got their news from it. And I think it was, or like used it as a kind of supplemental resource. I would hope that they didn't just get their news from from The Daily Show. But Jon Stewart would talk about these things in a comedic way, but with a, a, a like a, a big level of care, you know, like a large amount of care and grace with a lot of things. And I think that's missing from a lot of modern, you know, like journalism in a way and like coverage of objectively terrible things. Um, and so that, that paved the way for then like John Oliver, who John Oliver, love him, love last week tonight. And I think the show is just, it's just brilliant. I don't even know how else to describe it. It's just, it's a brilliant show. And the amount of, of research and detail that goes into the creation of that show is bonkers. It's absolutely insane. An incredible show. But that's not what we're, we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Jesus and Mero. And Jesus and Mero, I think, is is so, the sh- their show was so different from you know, your Conans, your John Stewart's, your, your John Oliver's, and even like your, you know, Fallon's Tonight Show or Kimmel's or Corton's or whatever it is. They, to me, were revolutionizing late night TV because they were, first of all, two men of color in this space, which is rare, like not since maybe like Arsenio Hall. And we had like a prominent, like, you know, person of color in the late night space like the major kind of you know network cable-ish premium cable-ish space to have a late night show and they kind of commanded their space almost immediately. Jesus and Mero was a show that was just so it was so unabashedly them in the same way that Conan was so unabashedly Conan and Jon Stewart was so unabashedly Jon Stewart you know like 
they commanded their space immediately. They, you know, brought you into their, their world versus, you know, the other way around. And what boggled my mind every time I would watch Jesus and Mero would just be how immediately comfortable a lot of their guests would get with them. Like they've, you know, interviewed, you know, they've, they interview, you know, the big stars of today, like they've done, like, you know, interviewed like Tom Holland and Keenan Thompson and Zendaya, but they've also interviewed people like Bernie Sanders and Yo-Yo Ma, you know, and it is wild, the spectrum of guests that they would get on their show and just how like comfortable they would make them feel and how they would bring those guests into their world, even if they didn't, you know, if they were like pretty far removed from it. Not only that, I think they were just, they were just funny, you know, like both of them were just funny and they were able to be funny together, but they also had their own kind of style of comedy that was able to work well together too. And so I think their, their show was really changing how we were looking at late night. And I think it, it falls It fell in line to me with kind of what happened, like I mentioned, with Conan and Team Coco after like, you know, when they went to TBS and how they really embraced digital. I felt like Jesus and Mero was doing the same thing, but just embracing a much more lax and by proxy authentic form of late night TV that was both fun, but it was real and it felt just very conversational. And I think a lot of these shows, you know, maybe at one point a couple of years ago, it might've been a very like conversational thing. You know, you come on, you have a good conversation, but now it's very formulaic, especially on like a tonight show. You come on, you talk about the thing that you're there to talk about. You may do like a game or something like that. And then your, your segments done pretty much. But with Jesus and Mero, especially on, on their Showtime show, because they had a Viceland show too, but especially on their Showtime show, they were able to just bring guests in and talk for like 25 minutes. And they would, ha- the guests would talk about the thing that they're there to talk about or promote or, you know, movie, TV show. But then they would just get into like what they're up to and like, you know, things that they are enjoying that has nothing to do with their work. You know, they would be able to have a really conversational, like, and fun environment to what they did. And it just immediately invited you in and you were kind of enthralled with what they were talking about and just the questions that they were asking, you know, as off the wall as they may be sometimes, especially coming from there. So it's, it's very sad for me. And I'm sure a lot of people just because you know, I, I was sure that they, they were going to go the distance, you know, like they were, they were going to get that Emmy nom, they were going to get that Emmy win. And it was going to be a really, really big deal. And it's so sad that it kind of had to end this way. So abruptly, you know, kind of having the, the carpet pulled out from from under you as a fan. And you're, you're kind of just like, Oh, gosh, wow, it's, it's, it's really over. Like, they're really, they're really done, you know? So it's just very sad. And uh, I, I do want to make sure to give flowers to them for the, the space that they did take up in, in late night, because it was so important, I think. And I do think it, it is, 
then they're a part of this big wave that I think it's happening in late night TV. But I would say the same for Amber Ruffin as well. That's bringing a level of authenticity and just bringing who you are as a person to the forefront of your show. You know, this is a mirror. It was very, it was very Bronx. It was very New York. It was very, you know, just like that real like grit, but still just funny, like unabashedly funny. And then with Amber Ruffin, it's very, you know, like sometimes I hate using the word quirky, but it's quirky, it's fun, and it's a little bit eccentric. And she's just such a like a ball of energy and she's just so great. And I think we're we're seeing that trend start to pop up more in, in late night spaces and also just seeing more people much more representative of America as a whole beginning to pop up in late night spaces. You know, late night is a very white boys club and has been for a very long time. And so it's nice to see many more people beginning to break through that barrier and find their place in late night as well, but still bringing that level of, you know, like comedy and commentary and I don't know, just entertainment to, to the field. I hope that one day they can reconcile whatever differences they had. I don't really know all the details about it. Apparently I think it was their, the rift kind of came from their podcast when there, I think there was some like financial stuff there that they just couldn't find common ground on. And so they decided to split. And with that came the end of their show on Showtime. I, I always said that I think it was like the best thing that was on Showtime when it was on. And I, I said with as much respect as, as I could muster that I don't think Showtime knew really what they had. And unfortunately, I feel like it's a not knowing what you had until it's gone type of thing. So I, I do hope that they can, you know, one day reconcile with one another and, you know, maybe they, they do come back and have a a show somewhere else. Or, you know, if they don't, you know, I just hope that they were able to to get back on the same page if not for for the sake of their friendship just for the fans you know something for the fans but but i digress so yeah that was a a very brief and quick eulogy for Deezus and marrow wish them both the best and i i hope that whatever is next for both of them is fruitful and successful and i hope that they They both continue to pursue the late night space because I think that they both brought something really unique to it and something that will be missed, I think, definitely. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations. You're an Afternooner now. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby. You can also find me on YouTube. I have a video up. It's about Shrek. I am working on a new video and it will probably be about Abbott Elementary because I love that show so much. I really do. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I'm really sad about Jesus and Mero, so I'm going to need some time. So I don't know if I'll be able to remember all of that in that description box. It's okay. It's okay. I'm holding your hand in spirit and we will get through this together. But when you are ready, I put all of that in the description box just for you. So you don't have to remember. You're welcome. You're welcome. As you can probably tell, sometimes I spend a lot of time thinking 
and noodling on what I want to talk about. And with that, I put on some music, a TV show, a movie in the background to get, you know, get thoughts flowing, get the creative juices flowing. And so this week's episode was powered by one song and it has been one song played on on repeat. It's, you know, that feeling when you rediscover a song that you haven't heard in a very long time. That was me with Used to Love You by by John Legend. I rediscovered or had that, that song reintroduced to me. And I I don't know what happened to my brain, but I listened to it on repeat for like like five times last night. And I had it on when I was kind of like loosely scripting this episode. So it's like early John Legend. So the song is insane. The production on it is insane for me with for a while. So I, I will be listening to it again when this podcast is done. So that's what this week's episode was powered by. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Are you a Marvel fan? Matt, you know I am. Jeff, I was asking the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it seemed like a weird question because, you know, we've been doing a Marvel podcast together for nine years now. No, no, I was trying to grab the attention of all the Marvel fans out there for this ad. Oh. I thought it was weird, too. You should definitely warn us. Good note, Ashley. Well, if you like Marvel movies and TV as much as we do, join us for the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. He did it again. Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade! And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast.